Greetings, I am your host, Tina Clark, and welcome to the second season of my Weirdest Experience podcast. This is the show of the weirdest experience that has ever happened to you and gives you a venue to fully express yourself and share your weirdest story with the world. This is the No Judgment Zone, a safe place to share your experience. And it's also a place where we discuss what happened to you and share some possible theories on what and why this happened. If you would like to be on the show, email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have David Edward here. He is the author of Atlantis Saul, Final Definitive Proof. So I'm real excited to talk to him today. Um, One of my favorite topics is to talk about ancient civilizations. And so I would like to welcome you to the show, David. Thanks, Tina. Great, great talking to you. And as we we were just talking before you hit record, I think this show is going to like blow people's minds because I'm going to tell you where it was and you're going to tell us what they were doing. Yes. So he come, he, he was explaining that he comes from a more scientific view. Great. But I come from more a spiritual view of Atlantis and and Lemuria. I've done a lot of reading about it. I've done a lot of research into it. I've done a lot of feeling into the truth. So tell us more about yourself and how you even came to write the book. Sure. So I'm an old guy. If you can't, if you if you, if you have the video version of this, then you're then not you that old. Come on. <laughs> well, my my beard, my beard thinks different. Um, but so so I grew up. Um, I was born in the late '60s, just to give you a, a sense of it. So I grew up in the in the '70s. I became you know conscious in the mid to late '70s. I, I have no idea what I was doing at three years old, but um, and and then into the '80s, you know, and then high school and then, and all that. So so I and I was a nerd. So I watched. I read all the books. Like I read Eric von Danigan's Chariots of, or uh, Chariots of the Gods. Uh, uh, Char- yeah, Chariots of the Gods. Um, and I watched all the TV shows. You know, I I kind of and when you when you get exposed to that stuff, especially as a kid it just drifts you into Atlantis. That's where you end up because everything else is interesting, but Atlantis feel it, it just feels different. It feels more, int- it feels more compelling. Um, there seems to be more information about all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then, you know, as, as I got older, um, you'd only spend so much time rewatching 70s documentaries on Atlantis, you know, so I drifted off to other topics. One of the things I, I drifted towards was the source material for Atlantis this is still as a kid or you know in high school you got to read something so uh, I've mentioned I was a nerd now several times I'll just keep going back to that as my excuse but but I I would read Plato (laughs) and some of the other Greek literature you know not as an assignment in class just because I I was interested in and that's where the Atlantis takes you so I I read all that and I became pretty well read in Herodotus and Xenophon and Plato and, 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 and documents in what we would call the classical Greece period um, and then that went away too. I cycled through that, and then I got out of, got out of high school, uh, went to kind co- of college, which was great. I lasted in college not even a semester. Uh, dropped out, and then I'm like, well, this is no good because I think I'm a smart guy, but I don't have any discipline. So I joined the army, which uh, oh, was boy. the <laughs> most it was the most ter- it was the most terrifying thing I could think to do, you know. And I I believed, and I turned out to be right, but I believed that they would offer the piece of my childhood that I didn't embrace, which is organizing yourself to be an adult, right? I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm a 19-year-old kid still. Um, and I was and I, I was right. I was absolutely right. So I joined the uh, infantry, 11 Bravo, 
11 bang bang they call it um because they were offering uh bonuses they, they gave you five thousand dollars if you joined the infantry but then i took what they call the asvab all the tests and stuff and I, I did i scored very well so they recruited isn't the right word but they used me to fill other needs um so i wound up being a special agent it was the greatest job i, I could have ever stumbled into um 97 bravo counterintelligence agent so i got trained in uh, battlefield counterintelligence and human, what they call human, human, you know, human intelligence collection, how to interview people, look at people, watch all the kind of stuff. So I developed those skills. Um, I got to, I was lucky enough. I got to uh, invade Panama. Uh, I spent six months, months in uh, Honduras in the Sotocano air base, um, intercepting DC nines out of Columbia where they're flying cocaine up and trying to get them into Texas. Then I went, my home, my state assignment wound up being with the 513th out of Fort Monmouth who two weeks before I was supposed to get there were deployed over into what was Desert Storm at the time and then became Desert, or no, Desert Shield and became Desert Storm, you know, all of that. So I had a pretty unique four years. When they handed me the reenlistment papers, I was like, nope, <laughs> I got what I need. So I got out and college looked pretty good. So I finished school. I wound it, I ended up with, I have a doctorate in engineering, three master's degrees. Uh, I've written 45 books since then. I was president of a university. Uh, I actually own two successful geospace companies now, tiny, little, uh, but still successful. So I wound up in a good place and it was an interesting journey. Uh, Atlantis resurfaced for me about a year ago or so. Um, Cause as I mentioned, uh, the older you get, at least as a guy, sleep becomes something that you chase more than you get more of so old guys can't sleep pretty much is what i'm saying so i was awake one night watching youtube and youtube handed me a video by this guy jimmy corsetti from this channel bright insight and he was saying he thought he had found atlantis and i watched it and when he was done at, after 45 minutes i was like yeah he found it <laughs> but he got you know because i was so familiar with the um material he got a few things wrong the case could be stronger but i i, I believed it so I'm like, you know, I want to jump into this space. I want to independently verify it, which is what I've done. And, and I want to bring my background and actual science, you know, and, and principle, engineering principles to see if we can figure out where Atlantis is. And it turns out it's an easy problem to solve. And that's what we solve in the book. And I can tell you where it is when we're, before we're done. Wow. So you went from a high school, I mean, a college dropout to president of a university. Yeah, Absolutely. Wow. Which university was it? Aspen University out of Colorado. Okay. Yeah, it's a good school. Wow. And how many books have you written? 45. Wow. <laughs> so it's good to do? be an old guy. <laughs> I can't sleep. So what do you, you know what? I keep getting awards. I use Grammarly when I write. I, it keeps sending me awards. Like, you know, you're the, you're in the top 1% of people that type on computers. I'm like, I don't really think I want an award for that, but uh, yeah, you know, you got to produce, right? So you produce output. I decided to start producing books um, and you folk, you know, you get what you focus on and I've focused on writing books. So now I have lots of books I've written. Wow. I'm writing one right now. My first. Okay. So the, my first book took me two years. Uh, yeah, to give you a feel of it, and and now I can write a very very good book in less than two months. So um, you just got to learn how to do it. And the first one is is beyond the hardest because you, you you don't even know all the mistakes you made until years later, you know. And some of the feedback, some some people yeah. are better at pointing out your mistakes than others, but uh, you know, that's that, that they call themselves critics. I don't know what that is. Well, some people live for that, but anyway. <laughs> And speaking of critics, like I sent a message to someone yesterday on Facebook and I said, I noticed you like to correct me on social media. 
and I'm asking you to stop. Oh, wow. Good for you. Wow. What happened? I haven't heard back from her. I'm not sure if she saw the message, but it's someone I've known since high school. Okay. But it's a boundary of mine. It's like, uh, what are you just here to correct me and tell me I'm wrong or not accurate? Like, that's not the point of the post. Well, you know, the internet is, is, is a fascinating topic. Um, I, I get this with a lot of the views from my books and, and I post a lot on Reddit about like the Atlanta stuff. And it's exactly what you say, which is someone will come in and they're not really correcting you. They, they create this slightly more specific, slightly slanted counter argument that they're pretending what you, what you said is they try and box it. And then, and then they try and then they defeat that. And, it, and it's like, okay, now I have two things I have to unwind. I have to unwind the <laughs> nonsense you just said about what I said. And now I have to unwind your criticism of this thing. I didn't say so, but People have perfected it, right? They become experts. They they have PhDs in 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 complex and meaningless criticisms. Well, that's fine, but I feel like the energy of it is it's usually it's it's like if you're correcting me, it's because you have an issue with yourself. Yeah. So you know, I don't want to be the recipient of your issues. Is basically what I'm saying. So it's just a boundary of mine. I don't like it because I could do it to other people and I don't. Right. Yeah, which is hard in today's world, right? For some reason, we think that all all deficiencies have to be immediately corrected publicly. It's like, well, that's all. There's a lot. There's a lot of mistakes out there. You know. And some of these are on. just opinion. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. are you going to drop the bomb on us and tell us what Atlanta is or Atlantis I- is? I can tell you where Atlanta is and Atlantis if you want both. <laughs> so I, I can nail that 100%. Yeah. <laughs> There's no coincidence so, that Atlanta is called Atlanta. You know what? I, I have actually been curious about that and I have searched and searched and I can find no association um, between the two. If you have, I'd be interested to hear it. So, well, uh, I don't believe in coincidences. I agree with that. So Absolutely. I believe the universe is very synchronistic. Um, so yeah, I think because Atlantis is located in the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> that is a, well, and actually, and, and, and it gets its name. It, actually, the Atlantic Ocean gets its name from Atlantis. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, from the, from the root of it. It's just like the um, the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, which is close to where I, um, this, this Rishat structure is, which is where I believe the city of Atlantis was. Um, and, you know, they're called the Atlas Mountains. Well, it also it turns out that the, the king of, of Atlantis, his name was Atlas. So mm-hmm. is that, can it really be a coincidence? You have the Atlantic Ocean, you have the Atlas Mountains, and then we have the King Atlas. You know, I mean, it just, it starts to make sense. And there's tons and tons and tons of those connections. To, so many, and I can run through them in the course of our conversation, but but so many uh, geographically that it's, it's near impossible that this place, this Rishat structure, which is in a country called Mauritania in the Western Sahara Desert, um it, it clearly was was what plato was talking about okay so what where did you find your sources and and what sources did you use so let's talk about sources for a second i i i, I, I vomited out my credentials and background so i i understand um and i've been in the world of in air quotes you know academic research so i understand that process um i also understand 
that there's this thing called noise and, and pollution and, and you get to a topic like Atlantis. So typically, yeah, in, in the academic world, we would do what you, what you just said, which is you want to jump into a topic, you do a literature review, they call it, and you see, well, what's been said? What's the current state of the topic? I started all that with Atlantis and quickly abandoned it because there are, it, it's almost, it, there's almost too much information about it, but we only have arguably one one primary source so that that's language we have to use we have what we call primary sources and secondary sources so almost everything you can read about lance is a secondary source the only primary source or at least the starting primary source we have is this guy named plato which were from you know if, if you talk about Atlantis, he probably said the word or heard the word for plato but he was a, a greek philosopher who lived in the fourth century kind of classical uh, greece and he um wrote what they called dialogues, mostly about this guy named Socrates, which, which was his teacher. And it's, we, we view it as philosophy today. Matter of fact, I always point out in 10th grade, usually it's 10th grade, almost every single one of us was, was handed a copy of The Republic by Plato, a very thick book. And then we walked around for a month and carried it around and didn't read it. So we've all at least had been that close to this guy. Um, in one of his dialogues is where he talks about Atlantis, this dialogue called Critias. Um, he mentions it in another, another dialogue called Timaeus, and he gives us a little information you can use to find the date and stuff. But this Critias dialogue is kind of where the story of Atlantis comes from. Okay, I'm familiar with Plato and Socrates and probably most people. Um, sure. So why did you hone in on the Atlas Mountains? Oh, so, so as I mentioned, I got lucky because I watched this, this video by Jimmy Corsetti from Bright Insight, and he was already saying this Rishat structure, which is in Mauritania, it's what it's called, Rishat. It's also called the Eye of the Sahara, Hera, but that's like a informal name for it. Um, but he, he believed this was a land, so he had lined up some information. Now, and the advantage that he had, and now the advantage I have in kind of moving it forward, is when you look at the Rishat structure, it's R-I-C-H-A-T, anyone can Google it, it looks like Atlantis. It looks like this thing that's been described. You can clearly see there's a center island, and then there are concentric rings of land and water um, that uh, would have looked, if you were trying to describe it the way Plato describes it in Critias, is about the best you could do. Um, so it looks just like it. And then you start going through the, the things that are measurable in Plato. And there, there are some, he tells us, you know, this thing was this long, that you know, they had to dig a hole this deep, all that kind of stuff. And you start to line all that up, which we can do. And, and this thing hits it. It hits every single one. Um, the other, the interest, there's an interesting line in Plato uh, where he talks about how far inland the city of Atlantis was. And this is a line that is typically ignored um, by uh, almost anyone who's looking for the physical location. I'll, I'll read it to you real quick. This is from Critias. He says, uh, the country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain itself surrounded by mountains, which descended towards the sea. It was smooth and even and of an oblong shape extending in, in the one direction, 3000 stadia. Okay, so that's what Plato says about the location of Atlantis. So a couple of things to unpack there. First is what, what's a stadia, right? We'd have to unpack that. And then we got to figure out what, what 3000 of them is. Um, so it turns out this is written during, um, I, I mentioned the classical Greek period. During that period, they used a unit of measure called the Alexandrian measure of, of a stadia. Turns out it's 607 feet. Okay, so that we'll, we can use that. And you can take that 3000 number and you multiply 3000 times 6007 feet and you divide it by 5280 uh, or whatever. Or it's either 5280 or 5820, I forget. Uh, whatever a mile is, I think it's 5280. And you come, you, what you come up with is 345 miles. And then you look at where the Rishat structure is and you measure how far it is from the sea. 
and it's 345 miles. So we're in, we're, we're not off by any magnitude at all. And when you, and when you look at the satellite images, you can clearly see there was a river. In fact, and we found other evidence of a river um, that would have flown, that would have flowed from the Rishad structure from inland Africa to the sea, which is how rivers work. That's the way you want them to flow. Um, so it fits and it fits everything else, but also fits stuff like this. So people like they'll tell me, uh, now, I haven't measured how far inland Atlanta is, in all fairness, Tina. So that would be interesting to look it, up, huh? It, it would be interesting to look up, yes. I don't believe that there's there's a river in the surrounding geography. However, I have not done that research. So you've, you've called me out. I, 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 will, I can do that. <laughs> I can do it when we're done. So, so that's good. Um, but as but far as uh, the, the, the challenge that Atlanta is going to have as being the city of Atlantis is that it's too far away. One, the other thing, Plato tells us lots of stuff. One of the things he says is that the Atlanteans um, had conquered uh, Africa, Libya, as far as Egypt, and um, uh, parts of Europe in, around the Mediterranean, if, if inland uh, close, close to Greece. Uh, so in order to conquer those things, and this we're talking, he also gives a date, we're talking, this is 9600 BCE, so it's in the last ice age, you have to have some geographic proximity to them. So Atlanta is not going to have a geographic proximity to Egypt, <laughs> but Africa and Mauritania does. So, we, you know, there's lots of things we have to check off to be the city proper. But the other thing I point out is Atlantis, or Plato actually tells us there's, there's kind of three contexts to, Atlant to Atlantis. There's the city that we've been talking about. Then there's the continent of Atlantis that we can talk about. And then there's the kingdom of Atlantis. So what I think is things like the Bimini Road and the Azor Islands and, and uh, um, uh, Ireland and all these places, Antarctica, that people have found that, that they want to be the city of Atlantis. Well, it's not the city. We, we know where the city is now, it, but it could, it's obviously part of the kingdom. I mean, we're talking about a, a maritime empire, right, that, that was active. And all these places, they line up to the technology we find they line up, the dates line up, the people seem to line up, the idea that they, they were exchanging, uh, trading goods and services lines up. So it, that all makes sense, but just in the context of the kingdom of Atlantis, not the specific city, because the specific city uh, has a lot more criteria that we can measure. And the only place that meets it on the planet of the earth is this, this Rishat structure. So this eye of Sahara is... Does it look like an actual eye? Yeah, very much. Okay, very much so. I, I think I've seen pictures of it. But if it's 345 miles from the coast, so mm -hmm. what's the what's the timeline for Atlantis? Have you discovered about how long ago the city well, was thriving? Us. Yeah, okay. Yes. Plato tells us specifically, he gives us the chain of custody for the information. Um, and things that we know about the world today all line up with that date. So the nice thing about the, the eye of the Sahara, the Rishat structure being the city of Atlantis is it doesn't contradict anything uh, of, we, you know, we tend to like in these fields to do air quotes around mainstream academia and, and people that won't change their mind, but the, to, for this to be Atlantis, they don't have to no one has to change their mind. Um, so what was this? What was the specific question you asked me? I, I, I drifted off in my wanderings. The timeline of timeline. Atlantis. Okay. Timeline. 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it, we're talking. So he tells us that this guy uh, Solon, who was Critias's great 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 grandfather, and this is Plato recording this, went to Egypt in 600 BCE and talked about all kinds of things. He was one of the first Greek politicians. As a matter of fact, he, arguably, he's the guy that thought democracy might be a cool thing to try. So he's kind of the one first person we can find historically that that in, invented, if that's the word you want to use, or came with the idea of democracy. So while he was figuring that out, he went to Egypt. I mean. There, there they are. They're, they've been around for thousands of years. You know, they're, they're a place to go to ask about how to govern. Um, and they go through all kinds of things. One of the things they go through is ancient Egyptian history, uh, which uh, and, and most of this is recorded on the on the walls of things in, in Egypt. You know, we, we've all seen that in the hieroglyphics. Um, and they basically convey the story of Atlantis to them. They spend a lot of time with them on it. And he wrote it down. I mean, he went to great pains to write it down. They helped him translate it into Greek and everything. And he wrote it down in a scroll. Um, and then that scroll made its way back to Greece. And this guy, Critias, goes out of his way through Plato to say that uh, he still has possession of the scroll and he's read it. So we're getting, this is not, it, some people will criticize the story of Atlantis and say it was an oral tradition. You know, how could it be, how could it be right? But it's not, it's not. It, it, it's a direct copy of what was on the walls of Egypt. We actually have, and we have a person after Plato who goes and verifies this. So we can talk about that. But in there, he tells us this happened in 600 BCE and this whole story takes place 9,000 years before they're telling this guy's song. So that gives us 9,600 BCE, which is an incredibly astounding and important date. Um, the, the next thing anyone who re digs into this will discover is there's this thing called the Younger Dryas, which we all talk about. Um, well, what is a, the Younger Dryas? Well, what's a Dryas would be the, a first question. Um, and what a Dryas turns out to be, it's just a plant. It's, it's, a, it's a flowering plant that does really well at higher elevations and colder temperatures. So when um, they go dig stuff up and they look at the different layers to find out how old things are, they can see how many of these dryases were um, growing. And from that, they can uh, assume to a great degree of accuracy what the temperature was doing at that time. Um, and you tend to get more dryases when the earth is colder, uh, which is why they call them you know, events. So we had the younger dryest for thousands of years where these things bloomed. Then we had the older dryest and the oldest dryest. So those are the three dryasts. I don't know who's naming this stuff, but uh, anyway, the, the, the most <laughs> Someone recent- Someone obsessed with the driest plant, apparently. Yeah, so, exactly, someone who <laughs> likes flowers. Um, but anyway, so the younger driest and the end of the younger driest is an incredible um, event on the planet. And again, this is accepted science, which is something happened um, and the temperature of the planet increased 30, 40 or more degrees Fahrenheit in, in, in a very, 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 very short period of time. It can be argued it was anywhere in the course of a couple days to no more than a year. Um, in, in either case, in any of those, in any span in between, there, that's a, that's a massive amount of time. Now, now the the cynic then says, well, what the the the, the ice caps were melting and the slowly rising water, they didn't see it for four months, you know that kind of stuff. But it's like that's not exactly how this works because ice is heavy, and as it melts and it goes into the ocean, water is heavy too. Um, and all the weight is shifting around as, as it's melting. So then you have what they call, you know, the tectonic plates and all different plates we're familiar with. When you look at what uh, one of the ge geological uh, structures called the Atlantic Ridge, uh, it runs right down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And it's very thin. So it's very susceptible to shifting. Um, and if all of this had happened and there was a massive shift, I think the most logical explanation is there was a big tsunami. Now, other people like they like asteroid impacts, they like uh, string of pearl 
from a comet that impacted all kinds of planets and make all kinds of things. But I don't, I don't know, I don't need to argue what it is because when you look at the satellite imagery from uh, the east side, so from the center of Africa looking towards the Atlantic Ocean, you can see the, the, the remains of the water rolling off. So you can see that a massive amount of water came over into Africa and you can see that it, that it rolled away. There's also other evidence. You find, we find unfossilized whale bones all over the Sahara and the Western Sahara Desert. Well, if, if you're a whale just kind of hanging out and all of a sudden you discover you're in a you know, thousand foot tsunami riding it into the middle of uh, the African plain, that's where you're going to end up. And there's no other way. No one's going to drag a whale bone 400 miles. You know what I mean? So, and, and they're unfossilized, so we know the timing is right. Also, Mauritania, but all of Central um, and Western Africa, one of their major imports is salt. Well, all salt is sodium chloride and all comes from the sea. And this is salt that's very close to the surface. It's not millions of years old when, it, when this part of Africa was a, a seabed, you know, a billion years ago or something. It's more recent than that. Um, so all of those things point to a big water event, which is, again, what Plato tells us. Plato tells us that the city of Atlanta sunk under the waves in the day and the night. Well, that's what, that's what uh, it didn't say it sunk into the ocean, you know, and that's, that's another piece of confusion. Um, he said it sunk under the waves. Well, a tsunami is a wave. I mean, that would be exactly what we would expect from a tsunami. Now, they also think that this location was a, a lava dome, uh, meaning that there was some level of active volcanic, volcanic activity below it, um, which explains another thing that Plato said, because Plato said they had hot and cold running springs. Well, you need volcanic activity to get that. It just goes on and on and on, lining up. The, what we know about 9600 BCE in this time period in the, in the Western Sahara, it was what they call the Green Sahara. So it was like, I live in Florida, we mentioned, you live in South Carolina, it was, it was, it was more actually more my climate than yours, you know, but it's nice, it rains all the time, there's rivers, in fact, the middle of Africa had the biggest freshwater lake on the planet at the time, Lake Chad, uh, there are tons of rivers, so it was just, a, it was exactly the environment that's described as the location of Atlantis. So in 9600 BC, right? Mm -hmm. How were the sea levels, though? Were the sea levels different back then? Well, if we're in the middle of an ice age and there's more ice, if there's more ice, there's less water. So the sea levels would have been lower. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, there's a, um, a famous map called the Piri Reis map. Have you heard of the Piri Reis map? Uh, no, I can't recall. Okay. If, you if not, you should look it up. It's a very cool map. It was made in 15... 14, 15, 15, something like that, like 21 years after Columbus. So Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. This map was made 21 years after 14, whatever 1492 plus 21 is, that's in the 1500s when it was made. And, and Piri Reis was a uh, Ottoman navigator. And this is because, okay, they, so we've discovered the new world. And right now all the countries, everyone's gearing up to go start sailing around the planet. And Piri Reis uh, commissioned this map to be put together from all the ancient maps that the Ottomans had, which were extensive because his theory was if he could get all everything into one map, then as he's out there sailing around, you know, he might have a competitive advantage. And the, the, the controversy around this map is that it, it certainly does seem to show more information on the left-hand side, which is where America and South America and all that is. It shows more detail than was known 20, 20 years after Columbus was there, but more, more interestingly, to your, to your question, it seems to show on the bottom of the map 
uh, Antarctica, the coastline of Antarctica without ice. So very, very accurate. And, and, and what we now know with satellites is very accurate. It also seems to show the continental shelf, which is what would have been exposed when, when the seawater was lower, that runs from Antarctica in a solid line up to South America. Seems to show all of that uh, very accurately. Now there's arguments against it, um, but they're no more accurate. They're no more valid than arguments for it. But what's interesting on this map this very same map is on the right-hand side, and everyone's been staring at this thing forever, um, is the coast of Africa. And no one has ever given it much, much mind because they knew the coast of Africa. It's not part of the new world. But when you look at it <laughs> and you look uh, on the, in the west, western Africa where the eye of the Sahara is, where the Rishat structure is, on the Piris map, there's this kooky little city surrounded by a ring of water up a river that's blocked by a bunch of mud or blocked by some obtrusion. Well, Plato tells us that after the disaster, it was blocked by what he called a shawl of mud. And where this is, is literally the Sahara Desert. I mean, this is, this is you die if, if you don't have water for six hours. And there's a city in, in a river, in, in, a, in a lake surrounded by water. How, no Ottoman navigator is going to accept that ridiculous map unless it was from a source that, that was trusted. So here we have preserved um, a map that shows low, lowered water levels, just like they would be during the last ice age, and shows a city surrounded by a ring of water in the middle of the Sahara Desert that, that we now know through Plato matches 99% to what Plato tells us about the city of Atlantis. So my question is, if it's 9,600 BC and it's 345 mm -hmm. miles from the coast, mm -hmm. the water level was lower then. Mm -hmm. So how is it still 345 miles? Oh, well, you can look at the um, continental shelf of Africa. And it doesn't extend anywhere near as far as like Antarctica. The biggest, the most affected through it was um, North America. If you look at Florida, for example, or even where you are in South Carolina down to Florida, you look, when you when you lower the water levels, the, the shelf is way mm -hmm. out. I mean, I mean, not maybe not hundreds and hundreds of miles, but dozens and dozens and dozens of miles. Um, on the African side, it doesn't extend out anywhere near that far. Okay. So what kind of... Uh... We talked about criticisms. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, no, and I, I should address these in the book. So here, so there's five. I think there's four or five here. I got them. I keep them written down because I like to go over them. I think it's important. Um, so the first, the first goes kind of to what you were saying a little bit, which is the first major criticism is that the elevation is too high because this this Rishat structure sits, as we said, hundreds of miles inland, um, and. Uh, it's like 12 or 1500 feet above above sea level so how could there be a lake and with an island in it right and then i point out to people two things first the way weather works which we all learned in second grade um 10 10 10 eight grades before we would have before we didn't read plato uh is you have water like in the ocean let's say and the sun shines on it and it gets hot and so the water turns into evaporates and goes up into the air and becomes clouds and the clouds move over land and they rain, sometimes they rain on mountains, sometimes they rain just on land, sometimes they rain back over the water, but they rain over mountains and the water goes down the mountains, it forms rivers and goes to the sea. So it's actually, it's, it's and the slope of this thing is so gentle, you could sail boats up and down it all day long. So I point that out, then I also point out, like, have you ever heard of Lake Tahoe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's 6,000 feet. I mean, yeah, that's over a mile. Yeah, there's so lakes they, in the mountains. I yeah. mean, like yeah. uh, Crater Lake, 
and Washington. Exactly. Yeah, they're all yeah. over. Yeah, they're all yeah. over. So, so th that, and then the geography, the big thing is because it's in the green Sahara, we know we have ample rain. We know we have massive lakes that have formed. We have rivers. We know all about them. Um, and, you, and you look at its elevation and you look at its accessibility, it's perfect. It lines up, it lines up perfectly. So that criticism actually becomes a strength. Another criticism is that it was naturally formed. I mentioned many people think it's a, a volcanic dome. Well, Santorini was a volcanic dome, and many people like that explanation for Atlantis, even though it doesn't fit any of these other actual places. As, as the capital city, I think it was um, one of the provinces. But, um, but, if it, but, but Plato tells us that Atlantis was created by Poseidon. Um, so unless we're saying Poseidon was an actual guy going around digging holes, you know, Poseidon is the god of the ocean and, and volcanoes and all that stuff. So it's, to me, that's he's saying it was naturally formed. So again, that criticism falls away. Another one is that um, I like this one. This one is really complex, but it's, it's a fascinating criticism. The criticism is that uh, Plato tells us Atlantis was on the way to the opposite continent. And to get to the Rishat structure, you actually go down the coast of Africa past Morocco. Um, which the claim is that's not on the way because that, that you're going a little south, you're going like west and south as opposed to straight west. And so those people tend to like the Azor Islands as, as the continent of Atlantis. And there's a complicated theory around how the land rose up and went down and all that stuff, which doesn't really fit with anything historically we know. So you, so you have to step out of the thing. But anyway, they, they, they say if you sail straight out, you, you're much more likely to hit the Azor Islands on your way to the opposite continent. So I was like, okay, that's a cool, that's a cool criticism. And that's a legitimate criticism. So how do, how would we answer that? I'm like, well, how, how can we test it? Well, the only true test we have is Columbus, right? He's the only seafarer that we have an incredibly well-documented journey of who tried to sail from Europe to, he, he was trying to sail to China, but, you know, sailed that route without knowing where he was going. So the question is, well, how did, how did he go? Cause he actually went to, he, he, he made four trips. So how did he go the first time when he didn't know what he was doing? And then how did he go the other times once he had, had been there and learned how it all worked? Well, it turns out the way that Columbus went to uh, the New World, even the first time, would have taken him directly by uh, this, this river entrance to, to Atlantis. Because the way the ocean tides work is you come off of Spain, you come out of the Strait of Gibraltar or whatever, you actually do go down the coast of Africa, and then he actually sailed to the Canary Islands. And then his first time, he then tried to sail directly west. Now, he's lower than straight across. But if you remember the story, it's, it's an arduous tale of heroism, if whatever we believe, but it took 10 weeks, which is a ridiculous amount of time. Like for many weeks, they didn't have any wind. There was no current. His guys, you know, wanted a mutiny. It was a disaster. Well, so that's not the way to get there then. Even his, you know, he went a little south. So, so no, the other three times he went, he did exactly what Plato says on how you get to Atlantis. He went out the Strait of Gibraltar. He went down the coast of Africa. He followed the currents to the Canary Islands, and he went across. He went across the little tip of West Africa to the little tip of South America because that's the shortest distance, and that's where the currents take you. And then he went up, you know, up to Cuba, Venezuela, well, past Venezuela, Cuba, and all that stuff. He actually never made it to America, what we call America proper. Um, but so, um, and then you sail by all these islands. So, so the the way to the opposite continent is is the way past this rich structure thing and it's the only way it's the only way now what what's buried now you talk about the the um, uh the the feeling side of atlantis what's here's, here's you want to get something crazy out of that this means that remember this is a text that the egyptians gave a guy in 600 bce and they're talking about the opposite continent and how to get there 
how kooky is that? It's, it's, it's not made up. It's not even controversial. It's just written down in Plato. That's crazy to me. So let me, and, and so we're talking, what is that? 4,700 years ago, they knew all, they knew how to get to the opposite continent. That's, you know, to me, that that's just, that's insane. Well, I think we don't give our ancestors credit. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. I think they did a lot of things. I think they traveled all over the world. Yeah. Including well, North America. There's evidence that they came to North America and mined um, copper and the, in the yeah. Great Lakes region. There's evidence of uh, the Chinese coming to the West Coast. There's evidence of the Vikings going up like Mississippi River and all of that. They, they went all over. I believe that I can't prove that. So if so, I try and make it a point to where I'm speculating, which I'm about to do to agree with you. Or, 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 <laughs> I love to I'm... speculate. I don't think that's a bad thing because me either. Um, yeah, I, there is evidence. There is evidence. It's just ignored or it's not paid attention to because it doesn't meet the narrative. Um, I agree with all that. And I look and like I say, I, I it's not in the book, but 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 I agree. I think when you really look at it. That you know, remember. So one of the examples I point out is, you know, well, why why are we ready to find Atlantis now? What's changed? All that kind of stuff. One of the things I'll say is, well, you know, 150 years ago, this Sleeman guy went looking for Troy, another mythical city, and he did it the same way. He he took the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I'm going to read him his history, and when he got when he got there, he found a big mound of stuff, and he dug through it, and they talk about well, we think Troy was Troy seven. Or maybe it was Troy 5, maybe it was Troy 14. And they're talking about layers because people kept going away and then coming back and building on the same spot and the same spot and the same spot. So, so to your point about it being ignored, this happened in the Rishat, in, in the Rishat structure too, where it seems to be whatever's sitting on top academically, they attribute to what they find all the way on the very farthest bottom. So if, if the uh, Aztecs we know the Aztecs were around in 1500 AD. So they built all of the, the, um, the buildings and stuff that we find in all of Peru and they built it on the past 300 years. It's like, no, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> but, but when, when you look, you can see the layers. You, you can see the yeah. different types of, of, of uh, technology and the bigger the stones tend to be on the older looking stuff and all of yeah. that. But, yeah, mm -hmm. but the answer we get is no. It's like, well, then how'd they do it? Well, you know, complex uh, system of pulleys and 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 work and people—they work really hard. It's like, well, why would they work that hard on it? Why, what 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 was going on in their lives? They had all this extra time that they could dedicate right. to, stu to stupid shit. And the answer is, well, <laughs> you know, why, why why are you asking me these questions? She's like, okay, okay, thank you. So yeah, <laughs> there's a pyramid in I think it's Chula, Mexico. Have you heard of it? It's as you have to give big. Me more. It's as big as the uh, um, Giza, but there, it's multiple pyramids built on top of each other. So there were several renditions of the pyramid. And there's a nice Catholic church that got stuck on the top when the Spaniards came. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, we're going to find that everywhere. And the big thing, the guy, I write the guy's name down. Let me just find it because I, I, I say it wrong. It's a Spanish name. Um, uh, where is it? Hold on. So it's Francisco de Orena, and I'm probably butchering that last name. Uh, did you, you're a Spanish speaker? Did you tell me you were? Yeah, I took Spanish for six years. Okay, so you probably could correct me on that. I appreciate you not doing <laughs> living up to your social media pledge. We'll um, go with it. <laughs> okay, yeah. It, it, it's it's O R E L L 
A and A. I know the LLs are pronounced as a Y, so I think it's Oriana. So I'm, I'm yeah, a double L is pronounced like a Y. Yeah. But anyway, mm -hmm. he in, in 1540 something to 42, 142, he was the first Westerner, in air quotes, to traverse the, the Amazon, the canal, the Amazon, uh, not canal, the Amazon River, um, all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast. And he reported an amazing civilization, just 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 techn technologically advanced, incredible buildings, um, you know, crazy and interesting societies and cultures and all this stuff. Um, I guess he had smallpox or something, so they all died. Uh, and then the, it took 100 years for someone to go back and retrace his steps, not knowing anything what happened. And there was nothing. It was just all jungle. So they, they announced that he made it up. So, and that's still in history. If you go history books right now, sitting in classrooms right now today, still say this, that he made it up. But of course, we have LIDAR. And in the past three, four, five years, they've been scanning the Brazilian rainforest and stuff. And what we've discovered is everything that we believe and then some is, is true, right? Because they found not just a couple cities, but I mean, the entire thing was almost like Manhattan. I mean, all of Central, not all of it, but a lot of the Southern Central American and a lot in South America was just, you know, crazy with, with buildings and, and technologies and towns and people and roads and, and the whole thing. So yeah, all of history is, is, we don't know. I think we don't know most. Graham Hancock says we're, we're a civilization with amnesia. I think that's probably about the best explanation I've heard. Oh, yeah. And the lesson is, is that the oral histories that we thought were just stories and myth are yeah. pretty accurate. I think so. I think that's right. Yeah. I, my, now, my personal speculation is that it's even worse that that. Um, this this thing, this earth, this this globe, this this spinning blue marble is like a blue marble from hell. And we're stuck in, <laughs> in, in the biggest groundhog day cycle, you know, that's ever happened. Um, because you know, there's been 23 species of humans on the planet. What, what does that mean? So what I mean, what 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 events, what cataclysm events that cause that much need for change in the DNA, right? 23 is a lot. Yeah. Um, the earth has been around for four and a half billion years. Yet everything we know is supposed to have happened in the past 5,000 years, which doesn't make a lick of sense. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, the, the dinosaurs were 65 million years ago and the dinosaurs died and gave us fossil fuels. Whether you like it or not, they did. Um, that cycle could have happened 20 times or more in the history of the planet. Yeah. You know, you eat, right? So I think and that, we I think didn't help we didn't help ourselves when the conquerors came and like burnt all the Mayan transcripts and burnt down no. Alexandria and and any kind of evidence of our history on the planet, right? I I, I have tangential evidence that this scroll that we've been talking about for Atlantis that, that Plato mentions, this mm -hmm. guy who worked for him, um uh Krantor, who I mentioned. He went back to Egypt and to verify it. And I'm convinced, and I don't have any evidence of this, but I'm convinced that he put the scroll in the Library of Alexandria because that would be the reason to go back and, and do that. And mm -hmm. then it burned down. So mm -hmm. we lost it. And, yeah. and, and there's something about, our, you know, we just, we just had this happen in the Middle East within the past, I don't even know, five, eight, 10 years. They're, they're, they're jackhammering, blowing up, um, uh, you know, a lot of the ancient works and stuff. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just there's something in our I, it, 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 yeah it's awful it's, it's just it's just the most terrible thing i don't know why we do it as, as a culture well we do it here they've done it here 
No, yeah. I know. I we, we do it every day now. Yeah. We're trying, to, we're trying to get rid of information we don't like, which is all this is. It's just so so I I don't know why that's ingrained as part of us. I just don't know. But it clearly is. And it's not, it's not, it's an earth culture, it's not a country culture kind of problem. Yeah, I'm not sure where that came that comes from. But that's why, or you know, you think oral history, a lot of the indigenous peoples would pass down their stories orally. And thank goodness they did. Because yeah. it, things over time have been destroyed, burnt, conquered, you know, messed with. And they have those stories. And even the Aborigines, they have their stories and about thousands and thousands of years of history. And we're finding out that, hey, they were right. You know, science is proving that they were pretty accurate. Well, I mean, these people are us. And, and for some reason, they, they, they've taken the time to, with the oral traditions to, to capture the information, but then we don't believe them. It's like we yeah. don't believe ourselves. <laughs> right? And, and, it, and we don't because it's this weird sense of, of arrogance um, coupled, you know, coupled with, I guess, I don't know. I don't know what the other word is. Uh, it, it's arrogance. And it's just this, this belief of superiority, like the, the people were, were idiots. Like, you know, they lived 2,000 years ago, so they were stupid. Like, well, I don't think they were stupid. I mean, they didn't have iPhones, but I don't know that that makes them the dumb ones. Yeah, uh, I think that makes us stupider. I do. I, I, I agree. Look, the, the Iliad, which I don't even know how many pages, let's say it's a thousand pages. Let, let's pretend. It was an oral tradition. It was a Greek oral tradition for hundreds of years. And then someone did finally decide uh, to write it down. Uh, Plato, actually Socrates, uh, written about by Plato, ironically, hated writing. He said this was this was a new technology. Kids these days they don't bother to remember anything. They just write it down and they go back and look. And he felt that it was impacting people's cognitive abilities. But in school, the the Greek kids they would memorize the entire book, what we call now book, the entire story. And and it, and it was the same between all of them. It's not they're not they can't embellish it because everyone knows the story. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I I can I can't remember where I put my car keys sometimes, much less a, a book this thick. Oh know? my god, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had that moment recently when I got up from my chair, walked to the side of my office, and I was like, "What am I getting?" <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we we're different animals, you know. <laughs> yeah. So at the uh, I the eye of the Sahara have they found any kind of objects or archaeological oh, yeah. finds there that connect to Atlantis anything well, interesting that they found there they, they found interesting things that connect to the time period and this is where I mentioned so what is the time period uh, and I know we're, we're getting I, we're getting sensitive to our time period here but um so we, we mentioned 1900 BCE this is part this is we're, we're smack dab in the middle of the pre-pottery Neolithic um, which is uh, pre-pottery means before before pottery before we figure out you could cook mud and it would hold its form, and of course Neolithic just means new Neo and then Lithic Stone Age. So we're in the middle of the pre-pottery Neolithic, the New Stone Age, which is also what they call the Neolithic Renaissance or the Neolithic Re Re Revolution, where we see people going from pure hunter gatherers to making that transition to agrarian, or you know you can grow stuff and kill stuff, not just kill stuff. So. We know we see, we see the beginning of agriculture in 10,000 BCE. So that's 400 years before Atlantis was destroyed. Um, so I think the Atlanteans were really good uh, at agriculture. And I think that's what um, 
we should be looking for it. So we, we have found on, we have two locations and I have a, a guy I work with, David Hansen. He's, he's there right now. He's, as we speak, he's right there. He's, he's in country and he's on site. And we're looking at a number of locations, one of which are these agricultural locations where we think we found massive earthworks and, and ditches and that kind of stuff that I think have been preserved through, through a series of, of, of luck. Uh, on site in, a, in the surrounding area, we found tons of the prehistoric Stone Age tools, which is what you would expect to find. Um, for people here. This is where I go back to Gobegle Tepe, which I, I think I mentioned when we started, because Gobegle Tepe dates to this exact same date. I mean, it, it, it dates to the exact same day, practically. And I think that level of stoneworking technology um, and, and society is exactly what we would have seen in Atlantis. And, and so these are people, they, they, were, they were only a couple generations removed from transitioning from pure hunter-gatherers, but so now they're, they're living here. Uh, but yeah, we find these stone tools, we find Plato mentions all this, the stones of Atlantis were red, black, and white. That Those are the, the type of stones we find there. Um, we find uh, uh, there's signs of the canal that he mentions or some of the cutouts that he mentions. I mean, you know, he says that there are mountains to the north and Atlantis was open to the south. We find that geography there and, and, and things like that. From actual tools, we find stone tools. We know it was habited. And then what, what I say, just to close it out, is DNA tells us we, we all currently believe that, that life humans originated out of Africa, right? So great, so let's accept that. So if, if that's where we started, why wouldn't we expect to see successful civilizations there, number one? Mm -hmm. Number two, you're talking about a period with good soil, good rain, temperate climate, um, and you have people that are, aren't idiots that show up and they see this thing. So they see this lake, this is 20 miles across, and in the middle are these massive rings of land and then an island in the middle. And it's beautiful, right? Because fresh water, you know, you can grow anything. Why wouldn't they take up and, and live on those rings? Why would they be idiots and just look at it? Because now the saber-toothed tigers can't get to you. You know, I mean, you're, you're protected. You're, 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 so, you're, you're insulated inland, so it's going to be hard to attack you. Other tribes, other clans, whatever, are going to have a hard time attacking you. It's like, it's like the best place in the world to live, and you're sheltered. Uh, we've already seen the light of agriculture, which we clearly understand. Plato says they used to race horses on one of the rings, so you, they, we, we can see you know, they can farm and, and have domesticated animals. Why wouldn't you live here? And if people lived here, and we can see that someone did live here, and we have history that says this is what they were doing, and it was called Atlantis, why can't we connect those two things? Which is, I think, what I'm trying to bring together in kind of a unified theory. Yeah. yeah. Well, you are pretty thorough about your argument. Well, you've been grilling me for an hour, so. Not really. Come on. <laughs> Not really. Not really, yeah. Um, so the kingdom, there's a difference between the city and the kingdom. So how big was the Atlantis kingdom? Well, what Plato tells us is that it was made up of 10 provinces. Um, we know that there was a continent involved, which I believe was West Africa. He tells us it was bordered by mountains to the north and it had less impressive mountains to the east, which is what well, he didn't say east, but to one side, which um, uh, we find we find there. Uh, and then he tells us that there were uh, uh, the other nine provinces were each governed by the elder of a, a set of twins. So we know it was at least nine provinces. And he gives us the names of the rulers, which I think linguistically can translate to the names of the locations, just like mm -hmm. the Atlas Mountains do. And so I think you find in there, I think you find the Azores in there. I think you find locations inside the, the Mediterranean. I think you find Spain in there. I think you can make an argument for uh, the Caribbean. 
um, because we have things like the Bimini Road and all that. And I th and when you look at the currents, this is the big thing. When you look, I mentioned uh, Columbus. We just look at the way the currents work. They they take you right over to not North America. They take you to South America um, and the Caribbean. Um, you can, that doesn't mean you don't end up in North America, but it's a much longer journey because the way mm -hmm. is. So I think all that. I think all of the things we're starting to find in the rainforest, all that massive building infrastructure what we can attribute to the uh, Aztec and the Inca and to a lesser degree the Maya um, I, I think that's was the other side of the trading post that what we're finding so that was probably part of the mm -hmm. kingdom um, but it wasn't the capital but yeah it was, and it wasn't on the continent but it was part of the kingdom which is the, the third piece mm -hmm. yep. so have you found any evidence on Lemuria you know what you mentioned? I I'm I am only tangentially aware that Lemur, Lemuria. I can't even say it. I, I I know it exists. I know it's the Pacific version of the tale of Atlantis. Um, mm -hmm. But I have stuck. I have stuck in the Western tradition and the Western geography and stuck with Plato and all that um, because of the approach that I've taken. So I haven't looked into it at all. Well, it's supposed to be in the Pacific, so Hawaii would be the remnant of Lemuria, but also the west coast of North America. Yes, yeah, so, okay, which makes sense. You know, yep. Yeah, the coast and then kind of the southwest kind of has that Lemurian vibe, but it was an advanced society like Atlantis and some of it overlapped and they got destroyed too. But there's so many stories and theories on how that happened. But basically... Atlantis had those stories too. I mean, Plato doesn't talk about it. He talks about the wave, but what caused the wave? Were yeah. they digging in the earth and messing with the surface of the earth? Were they, did they have technology that affected the weather? I mean, we don't even know what they did. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I, I like I said, I, I I can't answer. Like if it was a comet, I don't want to try and I don't want to now take on defending a in, younger Dryas ending comet impact theory. You know, I don't know. Something happened. You can look at the satellite images even today. You can look at the amount of salt that's accumulated. You can look at things like whale bones that that, that have not fossilized yeah. that were there. Yeah. Something happened. Water came up and covered most of Western and Central Africa, ocean water, uh, and then retreated. Uh, mm -hmm. And right around 9600 BCE or BC. Yeah. What caused it? Don't know. Uh, something did. I, I don't know what. I don't know that we'll ever know. Um, but it absolutely happened. Yeah. Yeah. And when you talk about Lemuria, Lemuria and you look at Peru, Peru, which has, you know, what's that? That's the Aztecs. Is that Peru? I think, um, you know, the massive, incredible structures, but they could not have traded with someone from the Atlantic because you have the Darien Gap up above Columbia, and then you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to uh, the other side of the Andy Mountains, which it doesn't work. So all of that would clearly be the Pacific culture, right. not mm -hmm. the Atlantic culture of the same, of, of we believe the same time period from what I'm understanding, so yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yep. So you've written 45 books. I see some of the titles behind you. So you have Earth 50,000 BC. What's that book about? That's a sci-fi book series. Uh -huh. um, and what it does, it starts off obviously in 50,000 BC. And the idea there is that the solar system is populated by a very advanced civilization. Uh, there's still a planet, there's a giant planet where the current asteroid belt is. Uh, and we have 
the good guys and the nefarious bad guys who are uh, um, fighting for the solar system. The good guys get stranded on Earth, discover all kinds of nefarious and terrible things that are going on and fight their way to freedom. And there's a lot of robots. Now, has that been proven that Asteroid Belt used to be a planet? Yep. No. No, this is I believe this, that. This is, I, I believe it, but this is a pure sci-fi book. But I try all yeah. of my books I try and base in well, well I guess it's it's called, you know, what they call it alternate history or alternate views, but I, I try fringe topics. I try and take those um and you know say, okay, well, if this were real, what, what would have happened? That's for for this whole for the sci-fi stuff. I'm like, okay. Let's say that was a planet. Let's say that all this stuff what did happen. There were, and I, you know, let's say the UFOs, they're us, right? They're just they're mm -hmm. the civilization that was here before us. What would have happened? What would it have been like? How would it have fallen apart? There's what a fascinating about? book about that. And it's a channeled book. So we're not talking about science. Okay. Yeah. But I actually enjoy channeled books, like certain authors. I do. And okay. um, this one's called Through Alien Eyes. And so it's about what happens when that planet blew up and how it came to blow up. And it also talks about how, why the pyramids were built and why. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I have theories on, I think we all have, you can start to kind of put it together. And for me, look, I, I believe kooky things. I, I mean, I, I think the moon is a spaceship that was put here to stabilize the earth because it got hit with something and it wobbles. If the, if the earth yeah. has been here four and a half, if the earth has been here four and a half billion years, how is it still wobbling? How is it still at a 23 and a half degree angle and, and, and doesn't have a you know stable, um, whatever they call it, rotation? How's that possible? Right? And has, but the moon helps with that. You know, you know what I mean? So you, you start to glue it all together. It's some advanced I, technology. They're like, well, we're going to put the moon here to keep the, the Earth's no. uh, orbit more stable. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think we're on the hamster wheel from hell. I mean, I think something <laughs> bad happens, right? Planets get destroyed, um, you know, and, and the earth clearly goes through some terrible, terrible catastrophic changes. You know, we talked about, let, let's say that there was um, a, a great flood or some horrifying event and people mm -hmm. were trying to pass information from the last whatever was here to the next whatever was here. I go back to astrology, which kind of emerged. It emerged out of the dark ages, the dark periods into kind of our current, culture but there was only one message Just everything else about astrology has been made up i'm not saying it's wrong or right but it's been made up the only thing about astrology that came through that veil from the past is that the, the alignment of the stars impact the fates of man okay so, which we think we kind of know right we think we're learning with the with the zodiac and all that that there's a huge bigger clock um and, and many, I've, I've seen people they've tried to line up cataclysms with the location of the zodiac and all that and they, they do tend to line up in a kind of scary way so it looks like you know there's like a six thousand year cycle twelve thousand year cycle and mm -hmm. there's, there's like you know 120,000. you know these all these just cycle on cycle and i think one of these cycles is really bad which um i don't know how far back it is or how far in front of us it is uh, but i think that's what all this evidence we find house house with everything everything's been destroyed everywhere how is that possible? Well, Everything in, in, has been destroyed. In my, if you're talking about the meaning of life, I was just writing about this in the conclusion of my book. Okay, so, good. Well, in fact, you're writing the conclusion. Congratulations. Yeah. So my book yeah. is, um, I practice shamanic healing. So I do uh, shamanic journeys and soul retrievals. And this is um, a book about over 80 of them that I've done 
in seven years for clients, myself, friends, family, whomever. So my conclusion is basically, this is ironic because there is no conclusion because there is life after death and we continue and we're multidimensional beings experiencing many lives at the same time. So why? Why are we doing this particularly in planet Earth, on planet Earth? And it's because we are part of source or creator and we want to experience everything. And it's all about the experience. And then all that experience and information is uploaded back to source and it's because someday I said, I paint, I said, I painted a picture of source kind of hanging out there all unified, right? All fine. I just exist. Everything's good. I'm okay. I'm satisfied. And then there was parts that said, hmm, there's got to be something else besides this. <laughs> and then with uh- that thought, bam, creation. Something was created out of that. I like it because it solves the why do bad things happen to good people question. Right? Because because if if the whole point is to experience everything, you're going to have to have some highs and have some lows. So Mm -hmm. I like like that part of a a unifying concept to it. Yeah. So yeah, fascinating. Um, so what are you yeah. working on now? And what's what makes you excited now? What topics excite you right now? Well, so for Atlantis, we're working on a documentary. I mentioned I have uh, people in country right now. So we're collecting, you know, we're filming everything. And I should have a documentary coming out on that on the Gaia network in the summer of 2023. Fingers crossed, everything goes well. I'm writing, I'm actually writing two books, which I rarely do, um, but I'm writing... So, so the main my main thriller book the main character is called Dirk Lasher and uh, this series is over but I'm starting a new series with him uh, and just interestingly to show you in the series I'm kind of Dan Browning it only Dirk is uh, <laughs> it has fallen in with nefarious uh, people and uh, they're trying to find the location of Atlantis so yeah I, I kind of wove that in and then I'm I'm also writing a book called A Glass of the Good Stuff which I started writing um, because so I like I loved like dime store pulp fiction westerns. Just be entertained, be entertained, be entertained. And the the thriller books, because they're successful, I have to I have to write them. I have to write them like it's a big boy adult books, and there has to be lots of plots and characters. It takes a long time to get through that. So I I, I paused on that, and I'm going to take. I'm in the middle of writing this western called A Glass of the Good Stuff, which is just pure western. The, the main character is actually the bad guy, not the good guy, although he's conflicted. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of gunfights and, and that kind of stuff. Simpler, simpler prose, I guess you would say. Yeah. So Where do you get that. all your ideas and inspiration from? You know, I, so what I do is uh, I've read, I read a lot. I, I've, I've read all of my life. Um, not, I'm not, I wouldn't say I was an avid reader, though. I mean, I, but I, I was always reading a book, but I wouldn't spend all weekend reading a book or you know, anything like that. Um, but what I noticed was the stories that I like uh, have kind of gone away. I'm uh, I know I'm old. I'm I'm we, we, culturally we're thrilled to push me aside, and now we have new stories, <laughs> new narratives. But but for me, I like a hero who 
has a hard time and has a lot of flaws and has to kind of fight their way through some really bad things that happen and probably wins in the end, although maybe the price was too high. Maybe not, you know, because it yeah. can't be the same. But I like, I like those stories. So what I do is um, I find a picture that winds up being the book cover. And then I say, if I were to buy this book, what would, what would that be? So then I write the back, the back, um, you know, the, the blurb, they call it. And I read the blurb. I said, oh, I'm, this is interesting. I like this book. If I were to read it, what would it say? And then I start writing. And that's kind of how I do it. So the, the, the wow. book cover, yeah, the book cover. Um, and then because I'm, I'm doing this on my own, I'm self-publishing. I'm, I don't have some big uh, publishing company. But then my book cover now looks like it was custom made for the book because it was truly the inspiration for the story. It doesn't tell the story, you know, but at least it, it lines up. Because one of the harder things as an independent author who writes a lot of books is if you pay someone, these covers can be hundreds or, or even thousands of dollars. Um, and I can't afford that. I don't make that much writing books. So, uh, so yeah, but so, but so that works. And I like the adventure stories and I like good heroes. Well, that's interesting because you would think you would write the book first and then get the book cover, but you're starting with the book cover. So how are you finding your book covers? Literally, I just, I subscribe to the Adobe um, uh, clip art, no, it's not clip art, whatever, Adobe images and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Stock, they call it stock. Um, uh -huh. And then I'll just, I have an idea and then I'll type that word in and I'll see all the images and I'll just flip through page after page till I find that one that resonates with me uh, and then I'll grab it. So literally a picture is worth a thousand words or more. 70,000 70, if you're going to try and sell yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> A picture's worth 70,000 words, exactly. Well, that, you know, I really enjoyed talking with you, David. We could probably talk about 20 other different topics, I imagine. But, you know, if you want to come back and talk about another one of your books or something different, I'd be really open to that. Sure. Um, so just share with the audience where they can contact you and find all of your 45 books you've written. Yeah, no, the uh, the publisher website, I mean, it's, it's I'm, I'm the publisher, but it's called Frequency99.com. The, the nines are numbers, so Frequency99.com. It's got all my books up there. It's got contact information. Um, upcoming events are listed up there. We have we have the, the teaser poster for the uh, uh, documentary we're working on. And that is that's the central point for all things David Edward. And where why did you come up with 999? Oh, just two nines, just Frequency99.com. Oh, just 99. Um, well, because, well, the original idea was, you know, well, what frequency are you on? Um, turn, tune to frequency 99. It was that kind of thing. Very high frequency. <laughs> exactly. The highest, look, the highest two-digit frequency you can get. So I'll yeah. prove it to you. So last night I had a Reiki share. And in a Reiki share, you give each other Reiki. Reiki practitioners do it. And then they, they give Reiki to people who want to experience it, you know, or want to receive extra healing or whatever. So a Reiki map. So I had two Reiki masters working on me, and one of the Reiki masters can see things when she's working on people. She sees like visions or images, and she said, "I saw a some being is what she called it on your right that's wearing a blue robe with a golden trim." But I couldn't figure out what it was. I couldn't see the face, and then I asked her, "Is was that Mother Mary?" Because oftentimes, Mother Mary, she wears the blue cloak and the hood, right? Okay. 
I, I know, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm very that. connected to the Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mother Mary, the priestesses of Mary. And she's like, I'm not sure. But she said, on your left, all I saw was a figure full of light and it was huge. And I said, oh, Archangel. And she's like, probably. So if your frequency is high enough, right? And we had been working on each other for an hour, I think, six different people in a room. You know, we were able, she was able to see something like that. Interesting. Yeah. I, mean, I, I didn't look up. I don't know what, what angel number 99 is. I'll have to look it up. Hopefully it's a good one. Well, 99 adds up. If you look at numerology, 99 adds up to 18, which is nine. And nine is all about endings. But whenever you have an ending, you have new beginnings. I like to finish books. Got to finish reading the book. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Everybody check out uh, David's books. And, you know, thank you for being on the show. Sure. All right, Tina. Thank you very much for talking to me. I enjoyed it. Hi, friends. Thanks for listening. This is your host of the Weirdest Experience podcast, Tina Clark. I also wanted to share with you, I have my own energy healing business called Stargazing Angel LLC. I offer energy healing sessions, EFT tapping sessions, tarot readings, and I also offer classes on Reiki, shamanism, and tarot, and more. If you're interested in having a session with me, please call 843-695-7218. Or you can email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, which is www.tinakinneyclark.com. That's T I N A. K-I-N-N-E-Y-C-L-A-R-K-E. Thank you for listening. If you have a weird experience to share, please email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Check out our website on tinakinneyclark.com. Also, we're on Facebook, and like us on Facebook and share your favorite episodes with your friends and family. I look forward to hearing about your weirdest experience.